Today we're reading 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought, not, ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for a beautiful snowy morning. Thank you, Lord, that you have brought us here this morning safely and that you have brought us here to hear your word, to be in community with one another, and to just renew our commitment to you and what it is that you are asking us to use our life for. Um, Speak to us this morning, Lord, and show us the uniqueness in which you have created us and how we are called to serve you. Amen. All right, three things I need to get out of the way before we get started this morning. First, I realized literally like two minutes ago that the order of worship that that lists what Joanna was supposed to read said 2 Timothy 2, 17. There was no hyphen between the 1 and the 7. And and that was not what I'm preaching on today. I, I looked at it. And this is what it reads. And their teaching will spread like gangrene. (laughs) Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. That would have been a very different sermon. So I'm glad glad that Joanna was able to roll with the punches. Uh, Second thing I want to mention before we get started. If any of us are ever on the newlywed game together... Um, and the question is, what is David's favorite hymn? The answer is, it is well. It is well. You can write that on your card. Every time we sing that, it slays me. Finally, um, I forgot my glasses this morning, which is good news and bad news. It's good news for me because in my head, for the next half, half an hour, all of you are going to be nodding and smiling. Uh, it's bad news for you because there's a decent chance that you're going to suffer through that awkward moment when I fall off the stage at some point as I'm wandering around. Drew, if that happens, just go ahead and come up, play a song as Travis wheels me out of the room. <laughs> Um, years and years ago, when Nick and I first moved to Italy, we didn't, we didn't first go to Bologna, which is where we served long term. First, we spent a couple of years in this little town in central Italy called Perugia. Um, the purpose of those two years was specifically designed so that we could learn the language, we could have some ministry training, um, and we could really begin to, to get grounded and rooted in the culture. You know, obviously Italian culture very differently from any, very different from anything we had experienced before, certainly different from the culture in which we grew up. Our very first and maybe most impactful cultural lesson in those early days, we learned through our relationship with our upstairs neighbor, Marco. Marco looked exactly the way he looks in your head. Um, (laughs) Classically 
good-looking, early 30s Italian man named Marco. He worked in the local fashion industry, as one does. He lived with his girlfriend, Raquel, who was a Spanish flamenco dancer from Barcelona. The classic Italian story. It's all real. Um, And Marco and Raquel lived upstairs from us in the bedroom Marco grew up in, in his parents' home. It's very odd to me, but all right, let Marco be Marco. Um, As we began to get to know Marco, kind of got to know the rhythm of his life a little bit, uh, you know, he would he would wake up often at the crack of noon and uh, roll in to his job in the fashion industry some days. And you know, he and Raquel, she didn't, she didn't have a job. She they they would be out at the clubs at night, uh, you know, skiing or at the beach on the weekends. All the while, Marco's mom was the classic Italian mother. She also looked exactly the way she looks in your head. Um, And she did all of their laundry. She cooked every one of their meals. She cleaned up after him. She did their shopping. She bought his underwear. All of it. It was really odd for me to watch. So after I got to know Marco a little bit better, one day I was sitting around with him, and I I asked him, "Do do you have any desire to get a place of your own? And he looked at me like I was insane. Like, why would you ever leave this. Like, I'm living the dream. The more we got to know Italian culture, the more I began to realize that Marco was not the exception. As a matter of fact, he was the rule. In fact, the only thing that really separated him from any of his peers was the fact that he actually did have a job. Most of his peers that were around his age uh, were just kind of hanging out, still living in their parents' house, Their life at at 26, 28, 31 didn't look that much different from their life at 16, 18, 20. And they had no desire for it to look any different. I was was shocked and, and secretly maybe even a little bit appalled by this phenomenon. Um, Italian mothers traditionally show their love and get their purpose from doting on, from coddling, specifically their sons, not as much their daughters. I didn't understand it because it was completely counter to the way I was brought up and counter to some of the core um, foundational functions of parenthood that I was taught, which, which were to... Prepare and equip your children to to leave the house and go be productive members of society. Young Italian men, alternatively, never had any reason, any desire to to leave the nest. Now, it's, it's, it's a specifically Italian phenomenon in Europe. The rest of Europe looks at Italy, and they don't understand it either. They've done studies on it. Um, as a matter of fact, recently, the European Institute of Psychoanalysis did a specific study on this cultural phenomenon, and what they found is this, this uniquely Italian phenomenon truly damaged career prospects for Italian men, 
long-term relationship prospects for Italian men. Uh, they found that Italian men were far behind other European men in the ability to make decisions. It was very difficult for them to move forward in any decision-making process without seeking the advice and encouragement of their mother as opposed to their spouse. They compared every potential partner to their mother. They would immediately make the phone call, Mama, die. she doesn't put enough onions in the ragu. Or she can't iron my shirts like you do. The study found that they lacked basic life skills necessary to be a productive member of society because everything had always been done for them. And then one day they got married and they were expected to do things they had never learned. Seven out of ten Italian men, unmarried Italian men, live with their parents past age 35. I didn't understand it. I didn't see how anyone thought this was in any way a productive way to raise children and to raise productive members of society. Recently, I have been confronted with the cold, stark reality that this is what we have become in the modern church. We have become the Italian mama that gets their identity from doting on, from coddling their children, expects nothing of them, doesn't take the time or put in the energy necessary to give people the basic skills necessary to live out their faith in the real world and to bring others along with them. Obviously, I'm speaking in broad generalities, but, but what we have done is created generations of Christ followers that believe ministry is reserved for the professionals. Their role is an hour on Sunday mornings and writing a tithe check. And guys, that's on us. That's our fault. It's not yours. Because it is not what has been modeled for us in the scriptures. It's not what Christ modeled for us. It's not the way he made disciples. It's not the way he made leaders. You see, Christ... He poured his life for three years into these 12 men. Within those 12 men, he had an inner circle of three that he focused on. And even within that inner circle, there was one he singled out. He loved them. He trained them. He poured his life into them. He taught them. It's what we see throughout the Gospels. 
throughout his ministry, his three years of ministry here on earth. And then we see in the book of Acts, which is the story of the spread of the gospel and the growth of the early church in the years immediately following the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. What we see is those men that he poured his life into, that he gave those final marching orders in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Be disciples that make disciples. They took those marching orders seriously and they changed the world. That is the way that we are going to build disciples in our congregation. That's the way we're going to grow leaders in our community. And it's what we see in this passage that Joanna read for us this morning. The, the one about leaders, not the one about gangrene. The letter of 2 Timothy, Paul's final and most intimate letter written conveniently to his protege, Timothy, written from a dank, dark prison cell, not one of these white-collar country club prisons, not house arrest. Paul was literally in a hole in the ground, the ceiling too low for a man to stand up in. It was these cells that the Romans used to hold prisoners while they were awaiting execution. Paul was in his final days, and he knew it. And in those final days, he wrote one final letter to his protege, to Timothy, and, and he didn't say, Timothy, you got to get me out of here. He didn't say, Timothy, go find a good lawyer. I've got so much left to do. Timothy bribed the guards. Timothy, do whatever it takes. He didn't say any of that. What he said was, Timothy, I am grateful. I'm grateful for my God, whom I serve with a clear conscience. I'm grateful for you, Timothy. He urged Timothy, don't, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of your relationship with me. Don't be ashamed of your calling. And then here in the passage that Joanna read for us in the second chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul gives his protege two simple steps of what it looks like to build leaders, to grow disciples that are going to carry on the message, to be a part of this gospel message that was spreading like wildfire throughout the known world. Look back with me, 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and let's look at these two steps. You, therefore, my son, I, I love that. Paul addresses Timothy as my son, my son in the faith. I am your parent in faith. Unlike that classic Italian mother, I have given you what you need. I have poured myself into you. I have equipped you to live out that faith in the real world and bring other people along with you. <clears throat> Excuse me. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Step one. Be strong in grace. Paul understood deeply, intimately, through his life, 
that the only way he had the strength to carry on was by the strength of Jesus Christ in his life. He could not do it of his own strength. Paul recognized if Timothy was to do anything, if any of us are to do anything to be true disciples of Jesus Christ, our strength has to be founded in what Christ has done for us. We have to understand first and foremost, foundationally, the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives. We talk a lot in this room about serving others out of the overflow of Christ in our lives, loving others out of the overflow of the love that Christ has poured into us. And that overflow makes that service and makes that love inevitable. We cannot stop ourselves. It's when we're trying to do things on our own strength that we get tired, we get exhausted, we get distracted, we get bored. But when we're founded in the strength that is the grace of Jesus Christ is when we can move forward. That's step one. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Step two. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Step one, where does your strength come from? Jesus Christ. Step two, teach others who will teach others. It's not rocket science. It is so simple. A faith grounded in the grace of Jesus Christ And go and teach others that will teach others. This is the Great Commission. This is Matthew 28. This is be disciples that make disciples. Two simple steps. But as we all know, simple does not mean easy. The opposite of simple is complicated. The opposite of easy is is difficult. Two simple steps that are sometimes so difficult, and Paul recognizes that in these following verses, starting with these words that we all love to hear so much, share in suffering, right? Isn't that what every one of us just takes joy in reading? Yeah, I want to be a follower of Jesus. Yeah, I want to be, I want to be a disciple. What does that mean? Well, Share in suffering. Keep in mind, this is written by a guy that is crouched in a hole in the ground. That has been stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, chased out of town by people that wanted to kill him. Days away from his own execution. He doesn't use the word suffering lightly. Paul knows That following Jesus is not cotton candy or rainbows or unicorns. It's real. And it gets messy. And in order to kind of bring that message home, what it looks like, 
to be grounded in the strength of the grace of Jesus Christ, what it looks like to teach others who will teach others, what it looks like to share in suffering. He gives us three metaphors, three word pictures. The good soldier, the disciplined athlete, and the hardworking and diligent farmer. Look back with me. Verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in, in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. Share in suffering as a good soldier. A good soldier recognizes that they're a part of something much larger than themselves. A good soldier recognizes that they are to follow the commands of their singular commanding officer. Not what those around them are doing, not what the other soldiers are doing. They've got one commanding officer, and they're to follow those commands. Don't get caught up in these civilian matters, Paul says. These things that are, that are good things. They're not bad things, but they distract us from the orders of the commanding officer. How often within the church do we become so focused on programs and buildings and ministries, all of which are good things, but, but they're good things when they're a result of the command of our commanding officer. As we're, as we're focused on those things, are we focused on those things at our own directive or at his directive? Are we so focused on the good things that we're distracted from the one thing? Those things in our life, are they for our glory or for his? Share in suffering as a good soldier focused on his commanding officer. In verse 5, Paul implores Timothy, Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. That sentence seems really odd to us today. So, so let, me, let me break it down a little bit. First of all, uh, at this point in time, they, they already were competing in um, athletic events in games that were the precursor for the modern Olympic Games. That was already a thing. When Paul talks about an athlete being crowned, he's talking about, you guys have seen the pictures, those laurels that they would wear, that the winners would wear on their heads. And he says, nobody gets to win unless they compete by the rules. Now, what most scholars will tell you is the rules he's referring to is any athlete that competed in those events had to give a solemn vow that they had trained rigorously for at least a year. Seems super odd. Like nobody in the modern Olympics has to, try, has to sign something and say, yes, I've, I've trained rigorously for a year. But they did that at the time because they wanted to be sure that all of the athletes were worthy of the challenge. Frankly, they wanted to keep out yahoos like me. I, you know, I've always, as I watch the Olympics, I've always thought, 
how, how cool would it be if every event they let in like one lay person to compete? Like you had all the elite athletes and then just one dude that was up there trying to, to downhill ski or bobsled or pole vault. Um, you know, you put me out there doing the 100 meter dash, you are going to have a new appreciation for the training that Usain Bolt goes through to become the fastest man alive. The athletes that will compete in these games had to train rigorously to be worthy of the challenge. There were no shortcuts. How often in our spiritual lives, as we self-identify as disciples, do we try to take the shortcuts? Yeah, I get it. I need to be a part of a small group, and I am, and I'm there when the weather's nice or when I don't have anything else to do. When Game of Thrones isn't on, when I feel like it, I get it. I'm supposed to study the scriptures, and I do sometimes. P.J. O'Rourke, the great political satirist, has a fantastic quote. Everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to help mom do the dishes. How many of us live that life? We all want to be the Olympic champion, but can't quite bring myself to get out and jog a mile when the weather isn't perfect. We look at our community. And we all have ideas of ways that it can be changed. Our world is broken. I get it. But how many of us are willing to do the small things in which we get no glory? A good soldier. A disciplined athlete. And then in verse 6, Paul paints another picture. The hard-working farmer who ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. Middle Tennessee. How many of you grew up on a farm or, or have farmers in your family? No farmers? Anybody? A few. All right, good. I have never met a farmer that sleeps in. I've never met a farmer that doesn't wake up and do everything that is necessary to take care of his crops, to take care of his livestock. You wake up early in the morning when it's 98 degrees in the middle of July. In the middle of this devastating ice storm that we've all been through in the last 24 hours. Nashville Strong. Even on days like this, you wake up early because the cows have to be milked. Guys, so often, being discipled and discipling somebody else 
is just a matter of showing up. Just waking up and doing what has to be done that day. We're so terrified because we don't have all the answers. We're so terrified because this person that we've been pouring our lives into has real problems and I can't fix it. I don't know what to say. Most of the battle is just showing up. It's two simple steps, guys. Founding our strength in the grace of Jesus Christ and teaching others who will teach others. As we come to a time of reflection and renewal this morning, I want to leave you with three questions. If you've got a pen, write these things down. Stick them on your mirror this week. And as you wake up and brush your teeth, ask yourself, first, where is my strength coming from? As I stare down the barrel of the next day, I'm running on fumes, I'm empty, I've given all I have to give. Am I expecting to get through this day, this week, this year on my own strength? Or is my strength truly founded in the grace of Jesus Christ in my life? Question number two. It's one of our five spiritual challenge questions. Who is discipling you? And who are you discipling? Here's the thing, guys. If you self-identify as a follower of Christ, the scriptures are very clear. These things are not negotiable. We don't get to decide whether or not we should be discipling someone. We are told in no uncertain terms, it is our only calling to make disciples, to be a disciple that makes disciples. If you can't answer these questions, who is discipling you or who are you discipling, come find us. Come find me. Come find Travis. Come find Jacob and Kat, Elizabeth Ann, so many others. Let us walk with you in that journey. You know, as followers of Christ, all of us should have a Paul in our life. All of us should have that person that's pouring into us, that's teaching us and training us and empowering us and equipping us and encouraging us. At the same time, all of us should have that Timothy. That we are doing the same thing for. Question one, where are you finding your strength? Question two, who are you discipling and who is discipling you? 
And finally, the third question I want you to ask yourself this week is, how is God calling you to share in the suffering of Christ in 2019? Is it as a good soldier, a disciplined athlete, the diligent farmer? What is God laying on your heart? What vision has God given you? What unique giftings and talents and passions has God given you? I'm going to be honest with you. If you come here on Sunday mornings and you're sitting in the pews and you're waiting on me to execute the vision that God has given you, there's a decent chance you're going to be waiting a long time. It is my pledge to you that we here at the church at Lachlan Springs will do everything in our power to love you well, to grow you, to equip you, and to empower you to execute the visions and passions that God has given you. Would you pray with me?